This week's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible has over 425,000 titles to choose from, all compatible with iPhone, Android, Kindle, or your MP3 player of choice. For listeners of the show, Audible is offering a free 30-day trial membership complete with credit for a free audiobook of your choice. You can cancel any time and keep the free book, or keep going with one of Audible's subscription offers. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. This week I'm going to recommend Shinto and Japanese New Religions by Byron Earhart. I'm reasonably certain I've recommended this before, but even if I have, I still think it's worth listening to. This is a fascinating history of both Shinto and the religions that began cropping up in relation to it in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Plus, it's narrated by Ben Kingsley, which is honestly pretty cool. Go to audibletrial.com japan to claim your copy. Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 358, A Nation in a Nation, part 2. Eight months after the death of Makiguchi Tsunesaburo, a weakened, starved, but very much unbroken Toda Jose was released from Sugamo Prison in Tokyo. In July of 1945, the imperial government began releasing some of those held in its prisons, with the imperial system collapsing, the police bureaucracy began to release low-level prisoners like Toda, keeping them with simply more trouble than it was worth. Which, by the way, gets us to a rather complex, nuanced, and frankly very difficult aspect of Sokagakai, which I only sort of touched on last episode in my haste to recover the basic aspects of Nichiren Buddhism, the precise relationship between Sokagakai before the war and the imperial state. Of course, that relationship was antagonistic. What else would you call a situation in which the founder of Sokagakai ended up dying in prison? But it's important to note exactly what brought down the hammer of the state on the group. Sokagakai's refusal to accept the imperial state's laws on religious control, and its encouragement of Nichiren Shoshu leadership to ignore those laws as well, were what made the government leadership so angry. However, after the surrender decision, this history was subtly rewritten by Sokagakai leaders to suggest that Sokagakai had not just been anti-religious control, but anti-imperial policy altogether, and especially to argue that the group had been anti-war. That, so it was argued, was why Sokagakai had come under fire from the police and why its leadership had been arrested, but that's not really true. It's pretty clear that what actually brought the law down on Soka Gakkai was this question of religious policy, and indeed, as Brian Victoria, one of the better scholars on the history of Buddhism and war collaboration out there, has demonstrated, Makiguchi was not exactly overtly anti-war. He praised Japan's military adventures in China and Korea, for example, nor was he anti-emperor, he told his captors the reason he refused to install Shinto charms in his home was that it was sufficient for him to revere the emperor directly. He did not need a talisman when he could, and this is a quote directly from his interrogation transcript, quote, just reverently pray to his majesty the emperor himself. 
Therefore, Soka Gakkai members like Toda Jose were not, in the view of the imperial justice bureaucracy, a fundamental threat to the state in the way that other thought criminals were, especially those damn communists. So as the situation started to get increasingly grim, they could be let out. If you were to ask a Soka Gakkai member, I'm sure they'd give you a very different take on this. Soka Gakkai's stance today is that Makiguchi was an anti-war martyr who stood for individual dignity in the face of a state that wanted to subordinate all individuals to its war efforts. But that, in my view, is not a position that is historically grounded. I'm far more inclined to agree with Brian Victoria, who I will now quote in long form here because I don't think I can say it better than he did. Quote, In fact, nowhere in Makiguchi's writings, either before or during the war, either in prison or out, do we find any statements critical of Japan's wartime policies. On the contrary, not only did Makiguchi justify Japan's colonial takeover of Korea and earlier war with Russia, but he devoted his entire life as an educator to devising more effective ways of instilling service to the state in Japanese children. He further advocated that these same children, quote, thoroughly understand that loyal service to their sovereign is synonymous with love of country, unquote. Even after imprisonment, he affirmed that loyalty to the emperor was but a natural part of the way of the subject based on his understanding of the Lotus Sutra. And as we have seen, as far as the emperor was concerned, Makiguchi asked, quote, Who is there, apart from his majesty the emperor himself, to whom we should reverently pray? For apologists to now claim that, his imprisonment and death notwithstanding, Makiguchi resisted or opposed Japan's war effort, is an attempt to turn night into day, unquote. But I digress. Makiguchi is of course dead by 1945, and so it's to Tota Jose we should turn our attention. So far as I can tell, most of the Soka Gakkai adherents who had been imprisoned abandoned their faith. Toda was one of very few who did not, and at any rate, had been a long-standing mentee of Makiguchi, and so was more or less the natural candidate to take the group back over. The organization that Toda Jose attempted to rebuild was more or less in tatters, its leadership mostly dead or apostatized, its coffers empty, and most of its members afraid to associate with it. But of course, that all changed on September 2nd, 1945, when leaders of the same military government which had broken up Soka Gakkai were marched onto the deck of the USS Missouri for a surrender ceremony in which they acknowledged the once unthinkable that the Americans had beaten them, and beaten them badly. The U.S. occupation of Japan was a good time for Soka Gakkai. This was the time when Toda Jose began constructing the history of the group as anti-war and fundamentally opposed to the imperial state, which again, it was demonstrably not. But as any Star Wars fan will tell you, a story doesn't have to be real to have appeal, and that one certainly did. The end of state control over ideological and religious orthodoxy, not to mention the collapse of the old certainties of the empire and the ideological vacuum that change created, opened the floodgates for religious movements, not just Soka Gakkai. Indeed, despite the calculations of American occupation officials, convinced the post-war era would be the golden age of Japanese Christianity, it was really the new religions that did the best out of it. I've even heard this period jokingly referred to as the Rush Hour of the Gods, which I have to say I kind of love. 
The rapid reurbanization of Japan also contributed to the growth of these new religions, including Soka Gakkai. What does that mean? Well, thanks to the wartime bombing campaigns of the Americans, the vast majority of Japan's urban centers were destroyed by the end of the war. Those that could fled the cities. Japan's population was actually 70% rural by late 1945, a figure that's almost Tokugawa-esque in its proportion of country folk to city folk. But of course that flow reversed almost immediately once the war ended, with huge numbers of people, especially young people, streaming into the rapidly rebuilding big cities, which were, after all, where most of the new jobs were. Those of these people who had been city folk before the war had often lost a great deal in the chaos. Those that were new to the city were, of course, leaving a lot behind in going where the jobs were. And thus both types of young worker, left alone and untethered in the big city, were very open to groups that promised membership, meaning, and community, groups like Sokogakkai. A Japanese sociologist named Ikado Fujio, who studied Sokogakkai in the 70s, contended that their post-war strategy was simple. Quote, the Sokogakkai followed wherever factories were built and laborers brought in. Unquote. But before we go on, I've been using this term new religion a lot here, and I'm going to be using it a lot over the next few episodes, so what do I mean by that? Well, the term is a direct translation of a Japanese phrase, shinshukyo, used to describe a whole crop of new religious movements that started cropping up from the late Tokugawa era into today. Generally speaking, these movements represented a mixture of Japanese tradition with Western religious and cultural notions, a process of cultural blending we call syncreticism in fancy academic speak. The intention of this blending was to help followers cope with the topsy-turvy tensions of the emerging modern world. That is, of course, a pretty broad description on my part, and there were many different new religions out there. We've talked about one before, Omotokyo, and another, Om Shinrikyo, in a much earlier episode, though of course, Om Shinrikyo is less famous for its beliefs and more famous for the whole terrorism thing. But of course, the thing about new beliefs is that in times of uncertainty, they tend to look attractive, and so all the new religions did really well out of the occupation. But Soka Gakkai had one thing really separating it from the other new religions, another factor leading to its rapid post-war ascent its organizational relationship with Nichiren Shoshu Buddhism. The precise relationship between Soka Gakkai and Nichiren Shoshu was, for the first few decades, pretty unclear. Nichiren Shoshu leadership insisted that Soka Gakkai was a subordinate lay group, in other words, affiliated with the religion, but not led by priests, or monks in this case, of the religion. To draw from my own experience, this is pretty similar to, say, the way the National Foundation of Temple Youth, NIFTI, what an acronym, is subordinate to the American Union of Reform Judaism, one piece of this larger religious whole. But Toda Jose would take a fateful step to change that relationship. He was the one who registered Soka Gakkai as an independent organization with a separate leadership from Nichiren Shoshu. He spelled out his reasons for doing so during the occupation period in his writing, quote, A lay organization is necessary as a buffer to protect the head temple from all direct responsibilities and trouble that might arise during a campaign to win new members to the faith. A lay organization is essential to persevere boldly in a total membership campaign 
that can be conducted while protecting the head temple from the outside. The priesthood's leadership methods and ways of conducting religious affairs in the past will probably be insufficient to bring the true law to ordinary people of today and tomorrow. Furthermore, the clergy is too limited in number to provide leadership for large numbers of believers. To compensate for these weaknesses, a lay organization is essential. An organization of lay believers is the most modern and ideal means to carry true Buddhism into all phases of society. Furthermore, such an organization can naturally and efficiently accelerate the pace at which the true faith can be carried into the world." Unquote. In other words, for Toda, status as an independent lay group was about being able to bring the message of Nichiren effectively to the masses. Unstated here, but equally true, is the fact that said status was really the best of both worlds for Soka Gakkai. The group could enjoy the legitimacy of being associated with an established religious sect, but still have a tremendous amount of freedom of movement. Eventually, Toda's decision to widen the organizational gap between Sokagakkai and Nichiren Shoshu would have some major consequences. However, during the 40s and 50s, both Nichiren Shoshu and Sokagakkai enjoyed a broadly similar goal. Bring in as many new believers as possible. While that shared goal lasted, the arrangement proved remarkably effective. Toda didn't just reorganize the Soka Gakkai Nichiren Shoshu relationship, though. He reorganized Soka Gakkai from the ground up. The trappings of the old study society were cast away. Soka Gakkai was reorganized to operate more or less along the lines of a business, with a CEO, a president in his case, regional headquarters, and even production goals, in other words, goals for the number of converts to be brought in. We will get more into the organizational framework of Soka Gakkai next week, because the third president of the group is really the one who brings together something close to the final form of organization for the group. But I do want to note that it was Toda Jose who started the move of Soka Gakkai towards a more regimented structure. What did this mean in practice? Well, the leadership of Soka Gakkai became a lot more centralized. It was now much easier for whoever happened to be in charge, Toda, for now, to effectively control the organization and its messaging, and to stay on top of developments within local Sokagakai chapters and respond to them. That's not to say the group's operating principles became entirely autocratic, simply that Sokagakai's leadership was able to keep things, to use one way of putting it, more on-message than a less centralized group would have. The final factor which drove the rapid ascent of Soka Gakkai after the war was simply Toda Jose's own personality. Makiguchi Tsunesaburo was clearly a smart, if imperfect, guy, but he was also every inch the theoretician, more interested in thinking about doctrine and refining his ideas than anything else. Toda Jose was very much not that. He was not a theorist. He was not the kind of guy to spend a bunch of time pondering how, say, the ideas of Hegel or Kant or whoever fit into his worldview. What he was, was organized and charismatic, and dedicated to the idea that growing Soka Gakkai's membership was the best possible thing he could do with his time on Earth. Toda moved the doctrine of Soka Gakkai away from the contemplative ideas of Makiguchi and more towards the idea of taking an active role in Japanese society. 
He simplified his pitch. Makiguchi's ideas were a complex mixture of Nichiren and Western influences, including some of those old-timey philosophers like, again, Kant, whose ideas are certainly interesting, but also enormously dense and famously difficult to follow without some prior understanding. Toda's pitch was way more straightforward, emphasizing the simple Nichiren-derived promise that correct action, bettering society and praising the Lotus Sutra, which were, in his view, more or less similar if not identical, was all you needed. That pitch might not be as appealing to intellectual types, but it definitely has what you might call a broader marketability, and contributed to the group's explosive growth. Toda Jose's reorganization of Soka Gakkai laid the groundwork for its rebirth as a religious organization after the Second World War, yet ultimately he's largely regarded as a transitional figure. That is, in part, due to the fact that despite his relative youth, Toda was 45 when he took the reins of the Gakkai, his tenure as a leader would actually be relatively short. He would step down from the presidency in 1958, April to be specific, due to health issues, and die shortly thereafter. In part, that impression is also because Toda's replacement was the guy who would come to define Soka Gakkai arguably more than either Toda or even Makiguchi before him ever did, the guy who still more or less runs the show, despite the fact that he left the presidency of Soka Gakkai in 1978, though he is still the president of Soka Gakkai International, and despite the fact that as of this writing he is 92 years old. His name is Ikeda Daisaku, and he is probably the first person anyone familiar with the present incarnation of Soka Gakkai thinks of when they hear the organization's name. Ikeda is from a merchant family long established in Tokyo, which made its fortune in one of the most classically Tokyo jobs there was, farming the edible seaweed, nori as it's known in Japanese, of Edo Bay. The family's prosperity had faded by the time Ikeda was born in 1928, though. They'd lost a lot of their business due to the fires caused by the Great Kanto Earthquake in 1923 and had never really recovered. And the misfortunes kept compounding. Daisaku was the youngest of the Ikeda children. His elder brothers were all drafted when he was a young boy to serve in the Pacific War. One of them would never return. Daisaku himself would eventually have to leave school and get a job to help cover the family's living expenses. He was eventually pressed into work in a steel yard as part of the National War Mobilization effort. Oh, and of course, the family home was burned down by Allied air raids in 1945. Now, this is me being a bit speculative, but one imagines that a life of difficulty like this leaves a young man open to new certainties to cling to in uncertain times. Perhaps that's why, when Ikeda was invited by a friend to join a local Buddhist meeting in 1947 at the age of 19, he said yes. At that meeting, Ikeda met Toda Jose, and quickly decided to apprentice himself to the charismatic religious thinker. Ikeda would convert to Nichiren Shoshu and eventually become a part of the youth leadership of Soka Gakkai, an initiative of Toda Jose's designed to help the members of its youth group, yes, there is a youth group, transition into leadership roles. That, in turn, would lead to one of the most insanely rapid organizational ascents I think I have ever seen. 
Toda would be instated as one of Soka Gakkai's youth leaders in 1953, at the age of 25. One year later, he would take the lead of Soka Gakkai's Public Relations Bureau. Literally within the same calendar year, he would take over as the organization's chief of staff. And two years after Toda Jose's death in 1960, at the age of 32, for those of you playing along at home, he would take over as Soka Gakkai's third president. This is an insanely fast ascent up the chain of command. What gives? Well, I think that a large part of Ikeda's meteoric rise was, frankly, driven by his merits as an organizer. He was, simply put, damn good at succeeding in an organization like Soka Gakkai. For example, he was a major figure in one of the key moments of Soka Gakkai's expansion, the group's Great Promulgation Drive, where Toda Jose set the goal of increasing the group's membership to 750,000 families by the end of the 1950s. This is a big part of the lore of Soka Gakkai. The story goes that the goal was attained in 1958, just months before Toda Jose's retirement and death, and good for him since he did say in one of his speeches, quote, If this goal is not attained, do not hold a funeral for me. Simply dump my ashes in the sea off Shinagawa, which is one of the neighborhoods of Tokyo. It's all nicely poetic. Toda sets out to accomplish his goal, does so, and only after doing so, steps off the stage of the world. It's also not verified by anything other than Sokagakkai's own claims in terms of its membership, so take it with a grain of salt, though the group definitely did expand a lot in the 50s. Ikeda was a big part of this expansion. Sokagakkai spread the word through small discussion meetings, an homage one imagines to the legacy of Makiguchi, at the end of which the group would try to sign attendees up for newsletters, mailings, other meetings, essentially trying to be aggressive about making the sale, for lack of a better term. Ikeda was apparently extremely good at this, carefully following Toda Jose's stated desire that Soka Gakkai recruit aggressively, but not so aggressively that the group developed a bad reputation in the press. He was a classic missionary, great at building relationships rapidly with potential converts, visiting their homes, setting up additional meetings, just generally attempting to rapidly get them in the door of Soka Gakkai. This is certainly Ikeda's own preferred version of his rise to power. We'll talk more about his writings in a second, but it's worth noting for now that Ikeda was really the one to write the story of the rise of Soka Gakkai in its official, which is to say organization-approved, form. He goes into great depth about the recruitment efforts in the Kansai region where he was most involved, and clearly positions himself as one of the strongest champions of the faith. Not everyone who has studied this era of Soka Gakkai's history agrees. Other historians put more emphasis on the organizational effectiveness of Soka Gakkai in terms of setting up these regular discussion groups, or on the charisma and belief of Toda Jose that Soka Gakkai was the best way to rebuild post-war Japan in terms of explaining the rise of the group but Ikeda definitely played an important role, regardless of how you slice it. That role, combined with the fact that it wasn't like there were a lot of other options in terms of established leaders from the pre-war era, secured Ikeda an increasingly prominent place in the organization and eventually guaranteed him the job taking it over once Toda Jose died. While the job of president of Soka Gakkai was technically vacant for two years once Toda left it, 
I think it's fairly clear that Ikeda more or less took the reins as soon as his former mentor passed. Ikeda took over the title of General Administrator of Soka Gakkai in 1958. He became head of the group's board of directors in 1959. Different historians have read this in different ways, but it seems to me to be a pretty clear attempt to assert his leadership, while also avoiding the unseemly appearance of being over-eager to take over for his departed mentor. Now, unsurprisingly, given that his influence over the group lasts to this day, we're not going to dispose of the entire career of Ikeda Daisaku in the last fourth of this episode. Indeed, we're not even going to get to some of the biggest changes he made to the group until next week. Right now, I want to focus in on two aspects of Ikeda's tenure that I really think set the tone for his leadership. His writing, and his revamping of some aspects of Sokagakkai doctrine. Let's start with writing. Ikeda wrote, and continues to write, a lot. Honestly, a lot doesn't even really do it justice. He has been prolific throughout his career. What do I mean by this? Well, the extremely scientific measurement of how many pages of authored texts does he have on Amazon.co.jp returns the answer of eight full pages worth. My attempt to get a more accurate headcount of his books has given me 60-plus published volumes, and that's only if you count some of the multi-volume stuff as single texts. Honestly, one of the hardest aspects of researching this particular series has been the volume of work authored by Ikeda Daisaku on pretty much every facet of Soka Gakkai. Seriously, he has written everything from children's books illustrating points of doctrine, to an autobiography, to what looks like an utterly fascinating book talking about Buddhism and communism which he co-authored with Mikhail Gorbachev of all people. The sheer amount he has written over the years means that it is enormously hard to actually find things on Soka Gakkai's history that don't come from Soka Gakkai. The volume of writing simply drowns out a lot of other sources of information. And by the by, I should note that yes, it's highly unlikely Ikeda Daisaku actually wrote all this. He'd be churning out something like a book a year on top of everything else he does if that were the case. He almost certainly has several ghostwriters helping him. But, written by Ikeda and an army of ghostwriters just doesn't roll off the tongue in the same way. Now, one of Ikeda's goals in doing all this writing might just be what I was talking about, to control the narrative. As a way of doing so, it's certainly effective. But I very much doubt it was the primary one, nor is making money, so Kagakai has other ways of fundraising. Instead, I would put it to you, Ikeda's writing is about building a story for an imagined community. If you've ever taken a class in modern history at the college level, you've probably had to read at least a part of Benedict Anderson's Imagined Communities, or even if you've taken the right kind of high school classes, I make my juniors read the intro every year. I'll admit that personally, I am not an Anderson fan. I think he wrote in a way that made his arguments harder to follow than they need to be, and also who puts in footnotes that are three quarters of a page long, that's just wrong. But there is still a good reason that Benedict Anderson and imagined communities have endured as they have. Central to Anderson's argument is the, well, imagined community, the idea that each of us accepts unquestioningly a sense of belonging within communities that are not grounded in our own knowledge, we don't know all the members, but grounded in a sense of shared identity derived from a shared story. 
the story of Americans, the story of residents of Washington State, the story of school teachers, whatever else. The nation-state is, according to Anderson, the most advanced and potent form of this phenomenon, honed to the point that people living in wildly different circumstances in very different places will unquestioningly accept that they have some sort of shared bond as Americans or Canadians or Russians or Japanese or whatever else, despite there never being a chance in hell they will actually meet. But it's not the only kind of imagined community. He also points to religion, for example, as a form of imagined community. And he notes that one of the most effective ways of building an imagined community is through what he calls print capitalism, essentially the mass marketing of printed texts, which creates a sense of communal identification when everyone else in the group is getting the same story about how the world works and can share in a discussion about the issues from the basis of these shared premises. Think of, say, everyone reading the paper of record, covering the major events in their area, and then discussing whatever today's headline happens to be. And that might give you a sense of why I'm going on a tangent discussing the works of a historian who mostly focused on Indonesia in this podcast about Japanese religion. Because you see, my contention to you is that Soka Gakkai forms its own imagined community, a nation within a nation. Oh hey, that's the title of the series. And that Ikeda Daisaku's writings are a crucial component in getting everyone in that community on the same page, in creating a shared story within the imagined community, to use Benedict Anderson's ideas. In that regard, no single piece of writing is more important, in my opinion, than Ikeda Daisaku's epic Ningen no Kakume, or The Human Revolution. The work is monumental. It is a 30-volume novel purporting to tell the full story of Soka Gakkai's development and origins. It is, in essence, a hagiography, a saintly biography, of Makiguchi, Sunesaburo, and especially Tota Jose. The title actually comes from a quote by Tota, who described Nietzsche and Buddhism's core idea as enabling a human revolution to remake society. Less important than the actual content of the text, which is more or less the kind of triumphant narrative you'd expect, is the role it plays in terms of establishing the shared narrative of what Soka Gakkai is and where it came from. And hey, wouldn't you know it, a shared narrative about the past is a big part of forming an imagined community. That's a role the text fulfills well. It establishes the basic shared narrative about what Soka Gakkai has been and can be. For example, this is the place where the narrative of Soka Gakkai, as having always been opposed to Japanese militarism, really gets consistently popularized. I think the centrality and importance of the human revolution is best illustrated by two facts. First, that Soka Gakkai paid to have the story made into a movie in 1973. If you're wondering, the director was Masuda Toshio, also famous for directing a couple episodes of the Lone Wolf and Cub TV show, one of the space battleship Yamato movies, and the Japan-based sequences for Tora Tora Tora. The starring role as Tota Jose was played by Tanba Tetsuro, probably best known in the States for playing the part of Tiger Tanaka in the fifth James Bond movie, You Only Live Twice. I haven't watched it, but hey, it does have 7.9 stars on IMDb for what that's worth. Second, Ikeda actually wrote a 30-volume sequel, rather creatively entitled Shin Ningen no Kakume, or The New Human Revolution, 
that continues the narrative of Soka Gakkai's history. He finished that one in 2018. The other important thing about Ikeda, at least for now, is his role in reformulating the ideology of Soka Gakkai, especially its approach to winning over converts. One of the basic articles of faith of Toda's approach to missionizing had been emphasizing the exclusive greatness of Nichiren's teaching. Nichiren himself did say in one of his letters that mixing his teachings with other ideas about Buddhism was, quote, like mixing rice with excrement, unquote, and one of the points of faith of later Nichiren sects was the so-called Four Declarations, roughly translated that the Nenbutsu, Amida Buddhism, is a path to hell, Zen is from devils, Shingon Buddhism will destroy the nation, and Ritsu Buddhism is a form of treason. Basically, all other competing forms of Buddhism out there are bad, and ours is the only right one. This is, to be frank, pretty unusual in the history of Japanese Buddhism, which has always tended to be fairly tolerant of doctrinal distinctions between sects. Toda more or less accepted this view, and the attendant attitude towards trying to win converts known as shakubuku, literally breaking and subduing. This method of conversion essentially involves aggressively and explicitly rejecting the wrong views of potential converts, and trying to demonstrate to them the foolishness of their beliefs. Indeed, that 1950s Great Promulgation Campaign is sometimes also called Shakubuku no Dai Koshin, or the Great March of Shakubuku. The approach certainly had merits in terms of pure effectiveness, though, of course, ethics is a somewhat different question. For example, Nichiren had written that countries which denied the Lotus Sutra would be punished, and so during the 1950s, Toda and company argued this was precisely what had happened to Japan, which was paying the price in the form of war, defeat, atomic bombing, and occupation for its denial of the truth. As the Soka Gakkai Manual on Shakubuku produced at the time put it, quote, Though this most secret and supreme true dharma had already been established in Japan for 700 years, people did not see or hear it, were not moved by it, and did not seek to understand it. Thus, they suffered collective punishment and the nation was destroyed. Just as Japanese once trembled in fear of invasion by the Mongols, so are they terrified by atomic weapons today." Unquote. That line was apparently pretty effective. This aggressive approach, though, earned Soka Gakkai a lot of bad PR from other Buddhist sects, which painted Soka Gakkai as a dangerous group of militant fanatics. There were a lot of bad stories that came out of this whole approach, too. One of the most common was Soka Gakkai converts attempting to destroy Ihai, tablets kept within the home to memorialize dead relatives. Nichiren Shoshu rejects venerating Ihai in favor of something called a Honzon, a calligraphized text with quotations from the Lotus Sutra and from Nichiren that's supposed to be the chief object of veneration within the household. The story of Ihai being smashed by converts, often without the consent of non-converted family members, were, as the youth say today, not a good look. Ikeda, perhaps realizing that these sort of apocalyptic lines and doctrinal rigidities would lose their effectiveness as the war receded into memory, was instrumental in revamping Soka Gakkai's approach to conversion, as well as the group's ideology more generally, to be more ecumenical. That is to say, he made the group more accepting of variances of doctrine within Buddhism more broadly. 
he also pushed the faith towards a softer approach to conversion known as shouju, embracing and accepting, in other words, meeting people where they are. Regardless of whether you view this change as being genuinely motivated by Ikeda's humanistic spirit, or as simply clever PR, it was an important change for Soka Gakkai, and there are plenty more coming, but we'll get to those and to Ikeda's continued influence next week. For now, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Special thanks this week to new patrons Thier, Sean Dempsey, Chris Palmer, and Nicolae Various for donating to support the show. To join them, to find out more about this week's episode or any other episode, or to submit your ideas for future episodes, go to the podcast webpage at isaacmeyer.net, that's I-S-A-A-C-M-E-Y-E-R.net, or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash historyofjapanpodcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week for part three.